In the middle of Disney World is an unassuming door with the number 33 next to it. This is the entrance of Club 33, which is the most exclusive and hard-to-get-in restaurant on Disney's property. Members of Club 33, such as Elton John and Tom Hanks, enjoy VIP tours and treatment, a private concierge service, and some of the very best food the resort has to offer. But getting into Club 33 isn't as simple as knowing the words to the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse song. However, if you want to join Club 33, you're going to have to submit an application letter and hope that it gets accepted. And if it is, you're going to be placed on a waiting list that could stretch for years, since there are only about 500 members in the club at any given time. Assuming that you actually do get the call to join, you then pay a $33,000 initiation fee and then $15,000 in annual membership dues. Only then would you, dressed up in your best evening wear, be welcomed through that unassuming door. There are plenty of elite clubs and organizations in our world, and all of them have strict standards about who you have to be what you have to do, and how much you have to pay in order to join. Most of these are so far out of reach for average people as to be laughable. As we've seen in Mark, with all the excitement swirling about the Messiah, it's only natural that there is an increased desire to want to join his elite club. But what exactly are the membership requirements? Is there a waiting list, a hefty upfront fee, an application process? How do we exactly become a citizen of God's kingdom? That's the question that Mark tackles in a couple of stories that we're going to be looking at today. Now, whenever Christmas or Easter rolls around, parents flock to bring their kids to Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny at the mall. There's something special and seemingly magical seeing these figures holding a child and making them feel special. It's just something we parents do. So I think we can understand why moms and dads would be keen to bring the children that they love to receive a blessing from Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you if he was in town? As we mentioned before, children weren't seen as worthwhile in first century society until they could start contributing. The Romans even had large trash heaps outside of towns where they would regularly drop off deformed, sickly, or unwanted children to die or to be picked up by other people. Kids there had no worth except that they did have worth in the eyes of the one who created them in their mother's womb, and that one welcomed the children into his presence. In contrast to how low that society saw children, Jesus elevated them to the status of people who had the ability to be spiritual. Brothers and sisters, we are very near to the heart of Christ when we love and minister to children. So as he's blessing the children, Jesus makes an important but often misunderstood pronouncement. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Right there is a vital key to opening to the door into Jesus' club. But what does it mean? What is it to have a childlike faith? I think it's common for us to look at this passage and think of how dear it is to hear kids pray or sing Sunday school songs to us. We may even think that kids have some sort of deeper understanding of faith that surpasses adults. But that's not Jesus' point. He's saying that at a foundational level, children understand a feeling that adults often forget, that they are absolutely helpless and dependent on others. I've yet to meet a toddler that could provide his own clothing or take himself to doctor's appointments and give himself all the love and security that he needs. No little girl I know can apply for an apartment or navigate tax forms and drive anything bigger than a bumper car. 
Kids instinctually know that their very survival depends on adults to care for them, and so it's very natural for them to apply their faith to God in that way as well. However, the older we grow and the more self-sufficient we become, the more we forget that there is no such thing as being self-sufficient in our salvation. We cannot work hard enough, earn enough, do enough, or be enough to secure a place in God's kingdom by ourselves. Only when we admit our helplessness and our utter dependence on the one who is greater than us are we accepted. Even those of us who are saved must hold on to that childlike faith of fully trusting and depending on God. I'm sure there's something in your life today that you're trying to control, you're trying to handle on your own, that you need to give up to God and trust Him to help you with. Take a lesson from a kid and have that kind of faith. Mark pairs up the story of the little kids with this next account because it illustrates very well how a childlike faith doesn't come natural to adults. This is where Jesus encounters the man that we call the rich young ruler, and it's an account that seems to start in a very promising way. Here we have an eager person who is desperately seeking salvation in his life. He runs up to Jesus, then falls on his feet in a gesture of humility, going so far as to use the honorific good teacher to address him. This man has a simple but very vital question, perhaps the most important question any of us could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? As we'll see, his mentality is on doing things, checking off a list, getting enough done to secure a spot in the book of life. But he doesn't get God. He doesn't understand what faith is about. He thinks that his works are enough, even as Jesus sees right into his heart and sees unrepentant sin. Since the man is talking about his works, Jesus obliges him and draws him into a discussion about the Ten Commandments. Has he done them? The man must have breathed a sigh of relief at that question because he's already checked that off the list. He hasn't cheated on his wife, he hasn't stolen, he hasn't killed anybody. His works have vindicated him. He, is sure, he surely has a lock on a spot in this club. Yet he hasn't because he's yet to understand that sin goes much deeper than our actions. Sin starts inside of us, and Jesus looks at him and thinks, You haven't followed the Ten Commandments properly since you got out of bed this morning. Never mind your whole life. After all, the law wasn't given to the people to be perfectly followed because absolutely zero people, not even David, not even Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ruth, Abraham, none of them had followed it to the letter in their lives. Galatians 3 tells us that the law was given to show us just how deeply we are sinners and how greatly we need somebody to save us from those sins. A couple of years ago, there was an atheist organization in London that paid to put up signs on buses around Christmas time asking, Why believe in God? Just be good for goodness sake. And you can, indeed, do good things without God in your heart. But God cares about the motivation for your actions. When that motivation isn't out of love for him, out of a desire to please him, then those good actions do not meet God's standards. They aren't enough to vindicate you. Mark said here that Jesus looked at this sinful man and he loved him. Isn't that so telling about the compassion of Christ? While we were still sinners, Roman tells us, God loved us. God died for us. God desired our salvation and wanted to see us come into his kingdom. To help him, Jesus offers a challenge to confront this rich young ruler's sin. For this guy, it was the sin of breaking the very first commandment to love God above all else. While he did love God, he loved his money and possessions more, and so Jesus challenges him to get rid of that idol that's holding him back from fully embracing his Lord. 
Now, that's not a command for him or for all of us to divest ourselves of wealth to be saved. This is a call to acknowledge and address the sin of idolatry. And he couldn't do it. God loved that man, but that man loved his stuff even more. You see, he was self-sufficient in his life, and it scared him way too much to become dependent on God. The Greek here says that the man was appalled and devastated, and so he walks away from his salvation. The famous poet Dante once called this moment the great refusal, seeing this man forever after as a wandering star who is lost and haunted by what might have been. Jesus loves you dearly, but he is not going to be second in your life. Here's a quick test for you. Think about everything you own, everything you do and you have. Could you walk away from anything in your life if God asked you of it? If not, is that an idol that you need to address? Repent of your idols and your sins so that you can be in a proper position to trust and depend on God for your eternal life. As Jesus watches the man walk away, the disciples are flabbergasted. They figured, as most Jews did, that riches were a sign of a clear blessing and approval of God for somebody's life. They had never once thought that wealth could be a barrier to entering the kingdom of God. But that's exactly what Jesus says. That is far more difficult for those who are well-off and self-sufficient to develop that childlike faith of dependence and trust that is required for salvation. He uses this kind of hilarious and bizarre image of somebody trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle as an example of how great a barrier wealth and independence can be between a person and salvation. Whenever I read this, all I can think of is that I've met camels and I know how ornery and bad-tempered they are. I can imagine how poorly one would take going through that process. Now, it's a very common misinterpretation of this passage to say that if you're rich, you can't be saved or it's going to be next to impossible. That's not the point here. Even in the Bible, we see several people of great means, such as Abraham, Job, and Joseph of Arimathea, develop a deep and abiding faith in God. What Jesus is saying is that the greater the wealth, the greater the temptation to place all your faith and trust in that wealth to provide for you. It actually creates a handicap and puts us at a disadvantage. That bears out strongly if we look at the world today. In the U.S., we're a very rich country. I mean, even the the middle class and lower classes here have so much more than many citizens of third world nations. And our country struggles as a whole with faith. We have our stuff. We have the American dream. We don't need God to save us. But when you look at what is typically perceived to be some of the most poor areas of the world, such as portions of Africa, you'll find an astoundingly strong faith. Why? Because they have the advantage of fully depending on God for everything. There's a very telling passage in the early part of Revelation in which John is writing to the lukewarm church of Laodicea. He writes to the church and tells them, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Again, this is not a call to get rid of your money or feel terrible about having wealth in any respect. It's simply a reminder from Christ that when God blesses us, we should depend on him even more rather than less and less. It reminds me of the line from the classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, in which Martin Luther sung, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. His fortress was God, not his money, status, or power. He learned to let those things go. Here's a wild thought I had this week. If we are a hugely wealthy and populated church right now, would we be depending so hard on God? 
Maybe that's what God's trying to teach us, to break us of our self-dependence, to urge us toward prayer and to grow our faith as we trust in him day by day. Perhaps, just perhaps, a sovereign God put us exactly in this situation so that it would be easier for our faith to develop. Perhaps it is a blessing. Knox Church relies on the hand of the Almighty to sustain us, and that's the way we should always see it. So who could be saved? Who can join Jesus' exclusive club? If it was up to ourselves and our own money, the answer would be nobody because we all sin, we all fall short of the standards of citizenship in God's kingdom. But if we fully rely and trust on God to provide the entrance fee, then he will pay our way through the blood of Jesus. Amen and amen.